God, we need you. We need your grace. God, may we be vigilant to your presence this morning. May we be open to your word this morning. We love you. One more moment. As I enter the dining room of the hotel where our translation workshop is being held, one of the Gisir translators calls out, Umbulu. I respond with, Umbulu, Anyo. We shake hands and sit down for a breakfast of omelets. I'm grateful for each of the four Gisir translators I will be consulting with. They are committed, spiritually mature, eager to learn, and they get along well with each other. Other members attending the translation workshop enter the room and greet each other, um, which is very important. Some translators prefer the French custom of lightly touching cheeks while making a soft kissing sound and saying, Como se va? Which is replied with, Ça va par la grâce de Dieu. How goes it? How goes it? Oh, it goes by the grace of God. The last part, by the grace of God, is an addition to the typical French exchange said by Gabonese Christians. When I first came to Gabon, I thought this was just ritualistic, something said automatically without thought. Gradually, I realized that this reflects how they approach life each day. Life for them is unpredictable. Most Central Africans don't have savings accounts, retirement plans, or insurance. Those who are Christians live each day in dependence on God. The men and women on each of the eight translation teams attending our workshop apply this dependence to their translation work as well. They are ordinary people, not Bible scholars. They know that if the translation work is successful, it will be thanks to the grace of God. After breakfast, we gather for devotions, 40 voices joyfully singing, 40 voices powerfully praying aloud at the same time, and 40 hearts listening to God's word. Now we are ready for work. Each person carries a chair and personal items to their work area. I meet with the Gisir team in my hotel room, we set up our new mini projector. The team loves it. It gives everyone the ability to look together at the same text, point to things, propose changes, and then to watch and ensure that the person editing the computer makes the changes that the team felt they had agreed to. Today, we'll be checking the draft of Luke chapter 8. As we begin discussing the text, I'm grateful for how this team interacts and gets along. Everyone's ideas are listened to and considered. That's not always the case uh, with translation teams. It took a workshop or two for the Gisir to gel as a team. Roger and Marguerite are from the Assemblies of God Church. Augustine and Theo are from the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Churches in Gabon haven't historically worked together very much, and so they tend to have a bit of a those-guys mentality. But as they got to know each other, it didn't take long for the team to come and come to appreciate one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. I appreciate each one as well. I admire Roger, the team leader. 
He has been sent by his church to a less evangelized region of the country to plant a church. He's a fiery preacher and evangelist. As Marguerite explains an idiom we can use in the text we are working on, my appreciation of her insight grows. She usually stays somewhat in the background as we discuss the translation. She lets the men have their say. But in the end, she is good at evaluating what is good, what is a good suggestion made by the team and what isn't. Half of our translators in Gabon are women like Marguerite, thoughtful, intelligent, and devoted to the Lord. Augustine is cheerful and laid back. I'm always impressed by the extent of his Bible knowledge. He is a retired forest service worker, but is engaged in work for God's kingdom. At his church, he interprets the pastor's sermon into Gisir. He and Roger do the keyboarding for the team. Neither of them had used a computer prior to starting our workshop. Roger picks things up fairly quickly, but Augustine is slower. The other team members sometimes get impatient with his slowness on the computer, but I've noticed that even though it takes him longer than Roger, he works carefully and sticks with the task until it is completed. Theo, short for Theophile or Theophilus, is the team's scribe. When there is a question about spelling, all heads turn to him. He also records the finished chapters in audio. The 40,000 speakers of Gisir divide into three or four dialect groups. All can understand each other, but there are differences in pronunciation and sometimes different words for things. Theo speaks a little different dialect than the other three members, but the team chose to make his dialect the target dialect for the Gisir Bible. He has excellent oral delivery and has become the voice of the translation. As we wrap up our discussion of their translation and head back to the dining room for dinner. Our brains are all tired from examining the text and searching for the right words. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude to God for raising up these men and women to translate his word into their language. The other seven language teams who are here at the workshop uh, are made up of men and women similar to the Gisir team. They are ordinary people who deeply love an extraordinary God and desire the people of their language group have his word in their language, the language that touches them at the deepest level. We are all trusting that God will use his word to transform the lives of many Gabonese. After dinner and leading the consultant staff meeting, I head back to my room. It's 9 p.m., miles to go before I sleep. I need to spend more time examining the Gisir translation of Luke chapter 9 to identify issues and concerns, things to talk about tomorrow, to further improve the Gisir translation. I'm thankful that God gives strength to those who are weary. Thank you for your partnership with us in the ministry. May God bless you in all the activities of your missions month. Ron Radke and Leslie, too. Bible translation and consultant and translation resource writer with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Thank you, Jay, for bringing us just a a snapshot of Ron's work. Ron has been connected with our church. We've been supporting him for almost 20 years now. He and his wife, Leslie, and family are based out of Texas, but he takes, based on the projects he's working on, he's worked um, Madagascar and other um, countries in Africa, but right now the Gabon um, translation that we just heard a story from, um, he's actually there right now doing another one of these workshops. He'll be finishing that up and then starting another um, translation project um, that's pretty exciting next month. So he's on the go just really facilitating um, even from computer training um, from people that don't haven't used technology before through um, workshops like that. They're just really um, illustrate just the exciting work of getting into the text and trying to um, 
translate it for this people group, 40,000 um, people that, as a result of this work, will have um, the Bible in their own language. Um, I'm going to pray for Ron and Leslie in um, just a minute. And um, But before I do, I wanted to highlight, we have these prayer cards. Um, this month we are highlighting different missionaries. We have more missionaries than we have weeks in October to emphasize. I don't know if you did the math on that. But um, for instance, we have the Kintus are also in Africa um, training pastors. There's a big need for that. Um, and so this card is meant for you to take home, to read through the prayer requests, to pray for um, the different missionaries that we support. Um, we have two church planners that we'll be talking about next week um, that are on here, um, as well as some of the missionaries that we've already highlighted. So I encourage you to take this if you haven't. The other thing we want you to take this month is the World Watch List. We'll be emphasizing this throughout the year. This isn't just an October thing, but we wanted to make sure that you have these. If you haven't looked at it, it basically highlights um, countries and gives you some statistics, a little paragraph um, to give you kind of a, a flavor of that country, and then the prayer needs. This is great to do with your family, um, to do, add it to your quiet time. Um, these are available in the lobby as you're exiting, um, so I encourage you to take that. The other emphasis this month is um, with Love, Inc. We talked about this two weeks ago, or three weeks. I don't know. It's been a long month. But the Walmart gift cards we're collecting, and it can be any amount. We suggest $35. It could be more than that. Um, and these cards we're going to be using to help um, neighbors that are going through the transformational, now called New Hope Ministries programs, um, buy Christmas presents for their families. And so it's a pretty cool thing to do, and we encourage you um, to do that. I don't think we've had a ton of gift cards yet. Last week is next week. We probably will accept them after next week, but the event, I think, is pretty soon in November. That What? It's in December, so we have a little bit of time, but don't forget to bring your gift cards in, um, and we'll have more details about that, too, um, when the event comes for the Christmas presents. So if you would just bow your heads, I'm going to pray for Ron and Leslie and their ministry. Father, we do pray for Ron. We thank you for that story, just the taste of what a translation workshop is like. We pray that the one that he's in on even right this minute, Lord, that you would make it effective, that you'd continue to build the relationships in the Gasir team, that you would give them empathy and love for each other and for this work that they are doing. Father, I pray that you'd work out any technical difficulties that they might be having and that you would just bless the discussion over your word. Father, I pray for accuracy and clarity as they work through um, languages, as specifically right now Luke 10 through 16 in the workshop right now. We ask your blessing over that. Pray for safe travels and good health for those traveling for these workshops from all over Africa and for the family and church members that they are leaving behind. Father, we ask this morning, we stand together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and just pray for your blessing and your provision over them. Father, we pray that your word would go forth with power due to the work that's being done. And um, I pray against discouragement that you would just lift the heads and the hearts of those in the trenches doing your work in Africa. And Father, I pray for this new um, workshop that Ron will be headed off to in Nairobi in November. Um, I'd, I'd 
there's a lot of thought and it's kind of a new way of doing it. And I just pray that you would bless the newness of that um, and that you would just work together for good. All of the different um, processes and people that are involved in that. And Father, I just pray that you would help us as a church to know how to stay connected and involved in missionaries like with missionaries like Ron and Leslie who are um, in the weeds and working with um, just using their gifts in these amazing ways. Father, we trust you and we just ask your blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning again. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 through 46. It can be found on page 828 in the Bibles under your seats. Once again, it's Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls them, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. Today uh, will be a little bit different. Typically, during the service, we all share what's called the Lord's Supper together. We're actually going to be foregoing that during the service and uh, sharing that as, as one big meal as a, as a family after the service. So if you're here today, just encourage you to stick around and uh, enjoy that meal all together. So typically, when we do the Lord's Supper, we'll often explain why it is that we do that. And it occurred to me this week that we almost never do that about the sermon. So I thought I'd just take a second and sort of explain why it is that we do this kind of weird thing where somebody gets up and monologues at a large group of people. So we have a sermon uh, basically every time we gather on a, on a Sunday, and that's sort of been the Christian practice for a couple millennia. It actually comes from a, a practice that, that predated that even. I mean, the, the Jews, when they were in exile during what's called the, J- the Jewish diaspora, the exile sort of scattered them across the, the Mediterranean world, and they would meet in places called synagogues. Folks would get up and explain the scriptures. And so Christian preaching actually goes all the way back to, to that practice. Now, the way that we approach it here at Trinity, when, when, when we do preaching, when we do a sermon, we really aren't going after inspiration, even though sometimes the sermon will, will likely inspire. And we aren't really going after motivation, even though... It, Hopefully, every now and then, the sermon will will motivate, and, and it's not really a self-help thing, even though, again, we're hoping it's helpful. At the end of the day, this isn't ultimately about any w- one of those things, and it's, and it's definitely not a time just for the preacher to sort of, like, loosely philosophize about stuff he's been kind of mauling over the, the past week, right? At the end of the day, what the sermon is, is where we, as as a group, all together, sort of hear the scriptures explained, but not just explained, but it explained in a way where we sort of see why it matters. The sermon is this moment where the, the Christian and Hebrew scriptures are explained so that we see why it matters. 
And we do that because all along, Christians before us, the ancient Hebrews, believed that God's main way of shaping people was actually through this library of, of books that we now know as the Bible. Christians and Hebrews believed that it was actually through these texts, through meditating on these texts, through mulling them over, through, through hearing them preached, that people would actually begin to change if they were, if they had the ears to hear. So a couple ways that we choose to do that at Trinity, one way we do it is through what's called biblical theology. So the Bible at bottom is really a story. And so at times we'll, we'll take a few weeks for like a theme, the way, you know, one theme is sort of developed across the whole scriptures. At other times we'll take sort of cultural issues or, or um, events in our day and just kind of see how should people who are being shaped by these books respond to God in these different cultural moments. But most of the time what you're going to see us do is actually just take a book out of this big library and just walk through it, just kind of trudge through the thing passage by passage. The reason we do that is because the books of the Scriptures, with the exception of the Proverbs, they aren't really sort of like just collections of sayings or just sort of like loose, unrelated collections of parables. They're actually really coherent books written by people who were probably literary geniuses. I mean, the, the writers of Scripture were really, really incredible. And and so to really get at what they're talking about, you end up having to trace their argument and trace their thought from the beginning of a book all the way to the end. And so that's why we do this Trinity where we just sort of walk through texts, which is why we happen on uh, you know Sundays like today where we have a really, really kind of weird text and it always seems to fall on a day where the preacher feels really under the weather. So that's where we are today, which means that today's sermon is probably going to have less shouting than a sermon by me normally has. Not not no shouting, but just less shouting than a typical Mike sermon. Anyway, so that, that's why it's, it's through this unhurried sort of meditative work, book by book, that, we are, that we're really formed. So that's why we've been in the book of Matthew for, for almost two years now, which is kind of amazing to think about. It's been two years this Advent since we started the, the book of Matthew. I have trouble believing that. You might be like, I don't. It feels like two years, Mike, that we've been in Matthew. So anyway, let's just start the passage. But I, I just want to share that a little bit about kind of why it is that we do this kind of weird thing called a sermon. Anyway, so over the past four weeks of so, or so, we've been in this, this, this section of, of Matthew's biography on Jesus where Jesus has been going through this kind of like cycle of questioning where the religious leaders of his day, kind of the church folk of his day, are asking him questions about ethics and about theology and about politics and, and all sorts of things. And what they're doing is is they're kind of testing his credentials. And what I mean by that is that Jesus has made some really kind of explicit claims about himself. Specifically, he's claimed to be this figure that was called Messiah, this long-awaited king who was to come and, and put the world right. And so what's basically happening is, is these, these men have gotten together and they're sort of, you know, questioning him, vetting him, uh, you know, testing out whether or not this guy is really Messiah. And so Jesus is sort of making his way through this gauntlet and he consistently comes out on top in the conversation. Now there's kind of a lull and there's this, this pause in the questioning and Jesus decides that he's going to ask a question now. And so we're kind of at this moment where the tables sort of turn, where it's been this, this long interrogation. Now suddenly it's with this, like, it's now Jesus' opportunity to kind of turn the tables and ask a question of his questioners. And he chooses to ask this really abstract question. 
Like where I, I know for me at least as a 21st century reader, the first time I read this passage, even with a seminary degree, I still thought, I'm not sure what's going on here, right? But that's the goal this morning is to sort of try to figure out what it is that Jesus is is claiming here. And what what what, it, what actually becomes clear when we really take a look at the text is that this whole question and the way that Jesus frames it up and and the quote that he deploys, it's all adding up to say something very significant about his identity. It's all adding up to something about his identity. So here's how I think would be the best way to approach the text this morning. The passage is organized in about three or four questions. So I think we're just going to take each one of them and sort of kind of play along, right? I mean, Jesus is doing this this sort of rhetorical questioning thing, so let's work through each question. I think we'll find ourselves getting closer and closer to to how Jesus actually saw himself. And I'm pretty convinced that what we're going to find is that Jesus did not see himself as sort of another teacher or even as like an enlightened master, but that he saw himself as uniquely standing in for Israel's God. He saw himself as, as divine. So the first question I'd like to ask is, is, is a question that, that I think will position us culturally. I think that's good when we approach a text like this. I think it's good for us to take a second and recognize our own assumptions as we go to it. And so I, I want to turn the question on you. What do you think of the Christ? Or more specifically, what do you think of Jesus? To me, this question is just as much alive today as it's ever been. Lots of folk have, have different explanations for who, who Jesus was. I want to sort of walk through some of the more interesting ones that have emerged recently. So this is sort of the, the idea of Jesus as Buddhist monk. So this is picturing Jesus under the Bodhi tree, which is uh, a tradition has that's where Gautama the Buddha achieved enlightenment, was under a Bodhi tree. He's holding his fingers in the Dianchi symbol, so you have the right hand up that symbolizes enlightenment, the open left palm in the lap that symbolizes kind of like the illusory nature of the world. But this is the, an idea that's based on, on scholars who think that what if during sort of the silent years of Jesus' life between the age of 12 and when his ministry began, what if he actually made his way to India? What if he actually trained as a Mahayana or Theravadan Buddhist and, and then returned to Judea to spread the Dharma? And so that's, that's sort of uh, Jesus reimagined as, as Buddhist monk. And that's kind of related to the next one. So this is the idea of Christ consciousness. So this is sort of Jesus as like an enlightened master. And so in, in, in this one, this one's interesting to me because in, in this one, folks actually believe that Jesus did consider himself divine, that, that Jesus, what made him, what sort of set him apart was that he had achieved this like heightened state of consciousness, uh, which basically means that he realized that he is one with God. And so Jesus is divine, but not uniquely so. Basically, from this point of view, the idea is that Jesus realized his divinity, but it's a divinity that we all share. So one author, the author of The Course in Miracles, says, was Jesus the Christ? Yes, and you can be Christed too. The idea is, is that we can achieve that same level of consciousness, and if we do, we'll realize our oneness with God. So this would be sort of Christianity reimagined through the lens of Vedanta Hinduism. Uh, so the next one, I thought this image was kind of cool. So this is uh, Jesus as, like, zealot revolutionary. So this is the idea that, like, in no sense did Jesus show up to be meek and mild. He sh- showed up to, like, take names. So this is the idea that, that you know, taking from, from these, these really sort of like disestablishment kind of statements that Jesus really did make, and we've encountered many of them in Matthew, like, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. 
I think the context, when we looked at it, we, we saw that has much more to do with how sometimes relationships become questioned and even crumble as a result of an allegiance to Jesus. But in, in this view, this is, you know, literally he came to bring a sword um, and, and would have if he hadn't been crucified. So they, they sort of have Jesus pictured as uh, Che Guevara, right, with the crown of thorns. And then the, the next one, finally, I think this is honestly the one that, that it's, it's most common. This is sort of the idea of, of Jesus as a great moral teacher or even a great moral philosopher. And so this would see the Sermon on the Mount and these other uh, passages that we've encountered in Matthew as sort of a vision for the good life, uh, um, even, even ways to structure government or, or the body politic. So this is Jesus as good teacher, Jesus as moral philosopher. So these are all different ways of, of seeing people that that folks have sort of taken up in recent years. I think they all share one particular thing in common. In each of these, there's nothing about Jesus that makes him innately different from any other human being. I think that's that's part of what's important in each of these views. I think folks are, are would want to maintain that if they take any of these views of Christ. Even in the Christ consciousness one, again, what we saw is that Jesus is divine, but not uniquely so. And so there's really nothing about Jesus in each of these views that would make him especially different. So I would just ask, where are you this morning? Just for us to take a second and identify for ourselves, what do we say about the Christ? What do we say about Jesus? And here's why I want us to, to identify that. A lot of time, I, I think we, we decide what we say about Jesus, but we ignore what Jesus said about himself. The thing I notice about these four explanations of who Jesus is, is that they can account for certain parts of what Jesus said. But in order to sort of establish their view, they have to ignore other parts of what Jesus said. And so it's really important to me, before I can really say what I think about Jesus, I have to first know what Jesus said about himself. Before I can know what I think about Jesus, I need to know how Jesus thought of himself. And today's passage is is one of the many that gives us a window directly into that. It gives us a window directly into how Jesus thought of himself. And again, it's kind of a tough passage. It's abstract and maybe a little bit academic. And so we'll have to kind of trudge through some first century details and, and first century thought. But at the end of it, I think we'll get this better idea of how Jesus saw himself, but also a better idea of why it was so controversial. We'll get a better vision of why it was that, that folks wanted to crucify this man. But as we go along, hold on to your answer. What do you say about Jesus? So the first question, what do you say about the Christ? The second question we'll, we'll, we'll use to, to jump into the text, and that's whose son do you say he is? So here's that moment again. Jesus asks the Pharisees a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So again, when Jesus talks about the Christ, he's talking about a specific figure, right? So this is the Jewish figure of Messiah. In, in Greek, it's translated Christ. And, and the Christ was sort of expected to be a political figure. Right, he wasn't expected to be divine. He certainly wasn't expected to like bring about the forgiveness of sins. They, folks didn't think of him as as anything other than this kind of political figure. He was going to show up and liberate the the Jewish people from under Roman rule, reestablish them as a state, set them up over the nations. That's what that's the sort of you know resume of of Messiah. He was essentially a a king meant to liberate the people of God. And specifically, he, he was he was going to be a king from the line of David, from the line of David. So if you know your Hebrew scriptures, you might be familiar with the books of Samuel. 
In which case you'll, you'll have read about David, who was the second king of Israel. David was called a man after God's own heart. And he was like this multi-talented guy. Started out as like a shepherd and then became king and was this valiant warrior, but also like wrote music on the side and was a poet. And like he just kind of could do it all. He was huge, huge in the, in the, the Jewish imagination too, because during his time, uh, David took all the, the tribes of Israel and sort of united them under one one nation, and he also defended their territory so ably that it sort of established a, a time of peace. There were a number of enemies around the, the territory of Israel that were pretty antagonistic, and David was able to sort of uh, quell that. And so David was this, you know, he was like the peacemaker, the one who, who brought peace, the defender, the poet, the musician, the, the theologian. He was just sort of everything all in one package, not that he didn't have his his grievous faults in, in, the, in his story. If you read, you'll, you'll find out how tragic many of those were. So he occupied this huge place in the imagination of Israel. David was sort of seen as like the height of what a human king could be. All other kings, in fact, you see this oftentimes as you read sort of the, the histories of, of Israel that are included in the Jewish scriptures. You, you see all these kings compared to David. They're always compared back to David. He was sort of just seen as like, man, he is the epitome and so over time, there were these prophecies and poems and sermons that were written in Israel about how one day God was going to raise up another great king from David's lineage, and that he would be like David. And over time, this figure was referred to as Messiah, which means anointed one. So when Jesus asks this question of like, what do you think of, of Messiah? Whose son is he? It's kind of a no-brainer question, right? I mean, these are biblical scholars that he's talking to, right? So they would just instinctively say, well, it's David. He's the, the son of David. That was sort of a term used for Messiah. So the Christ is a future son of David who will rule like David. And what we've seen throughout the book of Matthew is that Jesus made these very overt, sometimes stunning gestures to show that he was this figure, Messiah. He saw himself as the great son of David, but consistently he was rejected by the religious authorities of his day because he did not fit the bill of what Messiah was supposed to be. He didn't look anything like they thought Messiah should be. And so throughout his ministry, Jesus keeps on challenging the preconceived notions that people have about him. And so it's at this point where Jesus sort of throws a wrench into the neat, you know, theological system of the Pharisees. And he does it with this question that's not going to, it's not going to be as punchy to us as it probably was to them. But the question is, why then does David call Messiah Lord? if Messiah is David's son. Again, for us, with our 21st century lens, we're going to read that question and just think that is, A, a really bizarre question to ask, and I don't understand how that's logically connected anywhere, right? So that's what we're going to try to answer right now. So if if, Dave, if Messiah is David's son, why does David call him Lord? So like I said, in ancient Israel, there were lots of prophecies and poems and sermons that told the people of Israel about Messiah, but the very first one had actually been told to David himself. He was approached by a man named Nathan, and Nathan tells him in one of the books of Samuel that that there will be this great king that will come from your line, and his throne will last forever, and he's going to be amazing. And and so you can imagine why that would have an enormous impact on somebody, right? Like, hey, somebody is going to come from your line, who's going to be incredible, the best king ever, he's going to be awesome, and and you should be super pumped about this. So 
David was super pumped about this. And what, what, what you, you actually, you know, it's kind of a cool thing. You, you actually can get a glimpse into how he was thinking about it. In our, in our Bibles, there's this collection of spiritual poetry called the Psalms. And a bunch of them are almost certainly written by David. And in a couple of them, you can tell that David's been thinking about this Messiah figure. He's been thinking about this future descendant. And he actually writes about him in a couple of these poems. So in Psalm 110, David is, is writing about this future figure called Messiah. And it's a poem that's actually addressed to this future figure. He's like writing to his future descendant, which is, is kind of a cool thing for me as an English major and a literature nerd. It's a cool device. That's neither here nor there. It's a poem written to Messiah. And it opens with this phrase, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then from there, David starts to like talk to this future son of his, or son of a son of a son. So it's this moment in the text, the Lord says to my Lord. So he's David's sort of imagining God talking to his future descendant. And it's common for the Hebrews to call God Lord. It's like calling him master or king, so that's normal. But here's what Jesus wants to point out to the Pharisees. What Jesus finds really interesting about this poem is this one tiny detail. David portrays the Lord, God, talking to Messiah. And David calls Messiah my Lord. David calls his future descendant, my Lord. Which is kind of weird. Because as though this future descendant of David actually has kind of this authority over David himself. I think we can kind of see why that's weird, right? So we can imagine a situation, say, where there's like a son who owns a small business, right? And the business is really taking off, and his dad retires, and he decides that he's going to go and work for his son. We can imagine a situation like that where a son is sort of in authority over the dad, and that's that's normal in our minds. What would be weird is if the dad, like, totally unironically started calling his son boss. Like, with no sarcasm, not in a, hey, son, I really respect what you're doing, but, like, in this really sort of subservient way where he's like totally you know no this is my boss he's not my son i'm gonna call him boss now and like like even for us in our culture we're way more comfortable with role reversals than than in most other cultures that that have come before us but even for us that would make us feel uneasy like man maybe somebody should tell this son to tell his dad to cool it right like we just feel like naturally a parent should have some kind of respect from his his kid so we feel that way but multiply that feeling by a hundred and we'll get closer to the ballpark of what first century Judea was like. Like this whole idea of David calling one of his descendants Lord would feel kind of inappropriate. Because Messiah is David's son. It's weird for David to call him Lord. For David to call him Lord, and this is the point Jesus is hinting at, for David to call him Lord, there must be more to Messiah than just that he's David's son. That's the way that they would have seen this. There's got to be more to Messiah than just that he's David's son. There must be something about this future descendant that's going to set him apart so completely that even David calls him Lord. Is this making any sense? I feel like this is very abstract. I need, like, facial expressions of... Okay, so so in other words, essentially what Jesus is doing is he's, he's sowing doubt into the minds of the Pharisees, Right? He's sowing some doubt into the minds of the Pharisees. So the whole book of Matthew, we've seen that the Pharisees have this really entrenched view 
of who Messiah is supposed to be. He's got to be this kind of cookie-cutter figure. And now Jesus is making them doubt it a little bit. So they start to ask, is there actually more to Messiah than we realized? And then the scene ends. (laughs) And we're just left with this crowd of people who appear as baffled as we are, right? Where all of us are just left with, um, okay, so there's more to Messiah. So what is it? What is it? And because Matthew is a good writer, he doesn't tell, he shows, so he doesn't tell us. Right, he doesn't explain. He just sort of lets that scene hang, and we just have to suffer under it, right? So the way that we get at an answer to the question is by by just recognizing that Matthew's a really talented literary artist, so he's not going to overtly explain every single detail. Instead, he's going to assume that we've paid attention the whole time and something's going to click for us. So, like I said, this scene says a lot about how Jesus saw himself. Jesus saw himself as Messiah, but also as way more. So what more is there? Just a few weeks ago, like right in the immediate context of this passage, we we saw Jesus tell a story, a, a parable. And in the parable, it's, it's sort of like an allegory. In the In the parable, there's a landowner who owns a vineyard, and that landowner is God, that he represents God. And the vineyard represents God's people. And then there's these servants that go out, and they represent sort of the prophets and preachers of ancient Israel. And then Jesus has a character that he uses to represent himself. And he doesn't choose another servant. He doesn't even choose the head servant, right? Like a servant that has authority over all the other servants. He chooses the son of the landowner. He chooses the son of the landowner. Jesus wants us to to realize that that for him, there is a link between him and God. Jesus identifies himself not as a prophet or a philosopher or enlightened master, but as someone who shares in the very nature of God. And then you start looking back over the whole book of Matthew, and you you continue to to get the sense that, that Jesus thinks that what can be said of God can be said of him. Jesus thinks that 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 he is somehow uniquely Israel's God visiting his people to set the world right. So here's a few examples. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here Jesus is, is claiming unique, privileged knowledge, exhaustive knowledge of the Father that's shared only by the Father. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not obvious why that's a claim to divinity. Jesus is actually quoting from a Hebrew book of poetry called Surik. I know I'm getting so nerdy and academic this sermon. There's no avoiding it. I'm sorry. So like Jesus is quoting from this Jewish book of wisdom called Surik. And in Surik, uh, the poet speaks from the voice of God's wisdom. He personifies the wisdom of God so that God's mind becomes a character. And Jesus is quoting from the voice of that character. And he quotes this passage from, from the book of Sir. He's identifying himself with God's very thought, God's word. Matthew 12, Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the Jewish day of rest set aside for remembering the Lord 
Jesus is identifying himself as that Lord. Matthew 14, Jesus' disciples worship him as you would worship God, and Jesus has no problem with that. In fact, he accepts their worship. Matthew 9, 1 through 8, Jesus forgives sin, which is seen as only the prerogative of God alone. Matthew 10, 37 through 40, Jesus demands absolutely pri- absolute priority in the lives of his followers. They're to love him over everything else, which is a kind of devotion in, in the Hebrew mind that is only to be given to the Lord. Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus claims the ability to like authoritatively interpret and even add to God's word. He has this whole thing where he says, you have heard that it was said, Bible quote, but I tell you, and then he sort of fulfills that whole principle in, in the ancient scriptures. So Jesus is, is claiming the ability to add to the scriptures, not to mention that throughout the whole book, Jesus constantly repeats this phrase of, I have come, I have come, I have come, which is... Uh, once you kind of get into the context, that's like suggesting this idea of him coming from another realm into ours. So taken all together, it, I think it's pretty fair to say that Jesus saw himself as divine. Jesus saw himself as divine. He, no, he not only believed he was a king, but he believed the reason he belonged in the role of king because he was the pre-existent word, the son of the father, the image of the invisible God. I'm just spouting off phrases the earliest Christians used to describe this this mysterious relationship between Jesus and God. To put as inelegantly as possible, Jesus thought he was God. Jesus thought he was God. That doesn't mean that that the, the relationship between him and the father is a simple one, which is why... I think that's the reason why he never comes out with the direct statement, I am God. I think he's actually describing something that, that's very complex, which we as Christians aren't especially surprised by. It's called the Trinity. But that, I think that's the reason why. It's this very complex relationship, and yet Jesus absolutely thinks that he is Israel's God. So the final question I want to ask is, so what? So what? It was a question that I think many people were asking in Jesus' day. They thought that if Jesus really was what he claimed to be, it should have been obvious. That just because Jesus thinks he's divine, that's really no reason that I should. And, 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 and specifically in Jesus' day, I think the reason why they would have a lot of objections to this whole idea that Jesus was is actually what he thinks he is. It's just that he he doesn't seem the way you'd expect God to look. He doesn't seem godlike in the way that we think about someone being godlike. He should he should have looked the way we expected him to look. He should have acted the way we expected him to act. And the big reason they believed this is because Jesus didn't come with force. He didn't come with some kind of transcendent, untouchable strength. Instead, Jesus identified with weakness. He emptied himself in costly love. He sought out the broken, the marginalized, the ignored, the voiceless. He spent time with the most reviled people in society. And then most offensively, he was killed. And none of that fit the bill for how Messiah was supposed to be, much less how you'd expect God to be. So we began the sermon with some images of how folks thought of, think of Jesus in our day. Here's one from, from how Jesus, folks thought of Jesus in his day. It, it's hard to see. This is a, a piece of graffiti 
that at the latest was drawn in sort of the beginning of the third century, there's a good likelihood it actually comes from the first century, the late first century. Again, I'm sorry it's hard to see, but on the left you have sort of a, a scrawled out figure, you know, worshiping. He has sort of like a hand raised in worship. And then in front of him is a figure on a cross. There's a man on a cross with the head of an ass. And underneath it, it reads, Alex Amenos worships as God. The very first drawing that we have of Jesus was a drawing made to mock him. The first ever drawing of Jesus was drawn to mock the idea of a God who had come to die to make people whole. It was to mock the idea of a God who had come to die to forgive people, to make people clean, to bring them together in a new community, marked out not by pride and force, but a community shaped around the same kind of self-giving love that brought them together. And this idea was offensive. It seemed like it was an insult to the strength of God. If Jesus was God, he would have seemed more godlike. No one stopped to consider whether they really understood what God was like. This whole idea of Jesus being divine was just as controversial and strange in the first century as it is now. The Jews were ardent monotheists. For Jesus to claim that he was the incarnation of God was extraordinary and unprecedented. To convince people, Jesus would have had to do a lot more than just talk. Not only because of how he saw himself, but because of how he died. Messiah, again, was never expected to be God. He was never expected to, to give himself up for people. He was seen as a political figure, a, a strong-armed monarch. He certainly was not expected to die ingloriously outside the walls of the city like a criminal. Something extraordinary would have had to happen to convince a large band of first century Jewish monotheists to go around preaching that Jesus was God. And the earliest Christians believed that that something was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So now that might sound very strange for me to say that, and even circular. It's like, hey, why should you believe the Bible? Because the Bible says you should. That's a terrible argument, right? And I hope none of us would ever make that in defense of the faith, even though many, many of our, our, our brothers and sisters often do, and, and God's grace is eternal, and but not for grace, there go I. But anyways, that's actually a misunderstanding, though, of what, what, what we're saying when we point to the resurrection as as a reason to believe. There are actually substantive, strong historical reasons for considering the resurrection of Jesus. And I do not have time to go into them, but we, like, we do need to like, facilitate a chance to do that. I mean, a couple books that I've mentioned in the past are, are The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. There's a, a, some, some lectures online that are, are good. I just encourage you to reach out to folks, myself, Steve Bryan, others. We'd love to, to get coffee. But for now, what I'll just say is that these reasons are strong enough that there are many scholars who are themselves atheist or agnostic, but will acknowledge that the disciples of Jesus and many others experienced encounters with the risen Christ. And it's common for folks to propose different explanations for how that could have been, but most of these explanations, at least for, for me, haven't been convincing. So one atheist scholar, uh, E.P. Sanders, actually says that the followers of Jesus and later Paul had resurrection, or that the followers of Jesus and later Paul had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a fact. 
What the reality was that gave rise to those experiences, I don't know. For many of these scholars, they feel like it's more intellectually conservative to rule out anything supernatural taking place, and, and I get that. I get why that, why that would be the case. But for me, I've just felt compelled to go where the evidence appears to be pointing. Early Christianity happened because the first followers really and truly believed that Jesus was raised from the dead and that all his claims about himself were validated because of it. And if that's true, then everything is different now. Something amazing has been injected into this world. Something amazing has begun. Invisible to those of us who are looking for strength and transcendence, but visible only to those ready to look for it in hidden places, in service, in love, in lives changed by the news of God's forgiveness. Something amazing has begun, and the only thing left for us is to take part. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and and. I pray, God, that, that, that for those of you who, for those of us who, who have come to, to see you as the Lord, that you would instill in us a, a humble confidence, a sense of awe and wonder, especially for those of us who have grown up in, in sort of a, a church context and can become so numb to, to claims that are revolutionary. I pray that you would enable us to, to worship again, but not only to worship, but to, to fearlessly identify with, with your way, with the way of costly love, with the way that was so offensive that people mocked you through graffiti. I pray that you would increasingly knit us together as a community around you as you are, not as... Not as we often come to to see you through cultural or political lenses, not as a political tool, not as uh, just an inspiration, but that we would um, be a people united around the kingdom of heaven, the way of life as, as you sought to bring it about. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.